I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we look at a fascinating case, Hargan versus Garza, a lawsuit uh, filed by the ACLU on behalf of undocumented immigrants that ask whether the federal government can deny or delay access to an abortion for pregnant, undocumented teenagers. Joining us to discuss this important question are two of America's leading experts on constitutional law and family law. Leah Littman is assistant professor of law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. She co-authored the petitioner's brief in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt, which is a case that challenged Texas's health care regulations. Catherine Glenn Foster is president and CEO of Americans United for Life. She served as counsel of record for Amicus Curiae in Alliance Defending Freedom's amicus brief in Planned Parenthood v. Abbott, which defended Texas's health care regulations about abortion clinics. Leah, Catherine, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having me. Leah, let's jump right in to the facts of this case. Uh, who is the petitioner and uh, how did she get to this country and, and what, what is she arguing? Yes. So this case involves a challenge to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is a division of the Department of Health and Human Services, the office's policy regarding whether unaccompanied minors in its custody can obtain abortions that they are entitled to under state law. So HHS will have custody over unaccompanied minors who enter the United States unlawfully and are apprehended. It will then contract out their custody to private custody shelters. ORR, once Scott Lloyd began his tenure leading that office, has chosen not to support or allow any form of pre- or post-abortion care. So the undocumented women in ORR's custody are asking permission for the shelters in which they are being housed to release them into the custody of their court-appointed guardians so that they can go to a medical facility and have an abortion. ORR is taking some version of the position that they either don't have to release the minors from their custody at all if they conclude that an abortion would not be in the best interest of these women, or that they can delay releasing these minors into the custody of their court-appointed guardians while ORR searches for a sponsor that they can release the minor into that person's custody. So Hargan versus Garza involves the court-appointed guardian, uh, Miss Garza, suing um, Hargan, who is the um, person nominally blocking these women's access to abortion facilities and abortion providers. And the case has involved at least three individual women who are anonymous, Jane Doe, Jane Roe, and Jane Poe, who are of differing ages and differing points in their pregnancies, all of whom wanted an abortion and all of whom ORR attempted to prevent from obtaining one. Thanks very much for that uh, introduction. Catherine, what can you add to it? Um, what can you tell us about the uh, lower courts or the government's claim 
that uh, the plaintiffs in this case were able to obtain abortions if they returned to their home countries or found a sponsor. And then after you've added to the facts of the case, tell us what the D.C. Circuit held below. Yes. So um, this is, of course, a case of first impression. We are talking about um, about the lead respondent here, uh, who is an undocumented immigrant, a 17-year-old teenage girl taken into, um, as my co-panelist said, uh, HHS Office of Refugee Resettlement Care, obtained a medical exam, discovers that she's pregnant, decides that she would like to have an abortion. And as we've discussed, there are three outcomes for teens in HHS ORR care. Uh, first one can return to the country of origin. And initially, that was what Jane Doe uh, was apparently interested in. She never formally filed for that, but indicated some level of interest in that. Uh, two, these teens can find a suitable sponsor in the U.S. And there were a couple that were found and considered, but they never requested to sponsor her, never applied. So the search continued. And three, they can remain in HHS ORR care through age 18. And so this case ends up in the courts. Um, as we saw from the D.C. Circuit, uh, first it went before a panel that would have allowed 11 days to locate a suitable sponsor. Um, while that um, uh, doesn't uh, quite vindicate uh, what one might argue is uh, is uh, is a right to life or the uh, or the core issue at hand, it did at least um, provide the U.S. government a path forward, a way to follow its typical procedure and not violate Hyde Amendment principles or expend its resources uh, directly uh, facilitating an abortion. Then uh, the case uh, went before the en banc D.C. Circuit. Um, there has been some debate over whether that was appropriate in the first place since that original panel decision was not published, but it went before the en banc circuit, which, um, which sent the case back down and said that, in fact, that, um, that the U.S. government must immediately facilitate first the counseling appointment, uh, because, as you're aware, the state of Texas requires uh, pre-abortion counseling at least 24 hours in advance of the abortion and by the same physician who is going to be performing the abortion. And so the en banc panel required, um, the en banc court required full uh, and immediate uh, counseling and then access to the abortion uh, as soon as could be arranged. And then, as we've seen, what happened is that um, that decision came on the 24th uh, as of sometime in the evening of the 24th. And, and these facts are still a little bit up in the air on the timeline. But in the evening of the 24th, um, the guardian ad litem uh, understood that, uh, that the original physician, who had, in fact, about a week prior, counseled Jane Doe as to as to the abortion would not be available and it would be a different physician, meaning that it would be the morning of October 25th when she could obtain counseling and then the morning of October 26th when she could actually have the abortion following Texas law requiring that waiting period. Sometime later in that evening, uh, they found out that the original physician was in fact available. And so that October 25th appointment was converted from a 7 a.m. appointment for counseling into a 4.15 a.m. appointment for the abortion procedure itself. And so because of that, 
the U.S. government, the Solicitor General, um, uh, his timeline was changed and he was not able to petition for certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court prior to the abortion, only learning about the abortion about 10 a.m., uh, a couple of hours after it had been completed. Thanks very much for that. All right, so the abortions um, have been uh, completed, but uh, as uh, I learned in first-year law school in the, studying the Roe v. Wade case, when a procedure is capable of repetition but evading review, then the Supreme Court can, in theory, review it because this situation might arise in the future. So now let's jump into the constitutional merits of the case. And in the en banc decision of the D.C. Circuit, there were three separate statements that are really uh, interesting. And let's begin with the separate statement of Judge Millett, who uh, held that uh, aliens in the United States are fully protected by the due process clause of the uh, Fifth and Fourteenth uh, Amendments. Uh, they are entitled to rights protected by Roe v. Wade. And, and Judge Millett said that settled precedent, uh, including the Planned Parenthood and Hellerstadt cases, establishes the government may not put substantial and unjustified obstacles in the way of a woman's exercise of her right to an abortion pre-viability. And she felt that the requirement that the uh, uh, people in this case obtained a sponsor or left the country was an undue burden. Uh, uh, Leah, can you tell us more about uh, Judge Millett's uh, decision and whether or not you agree with it. Yes. So first, um, the decision that you're referring to, technically all the D.C. Circuit was deciding is whether to stay the district court's order that required the government to stop interfering with the woman's ability to leave the custody of the shelter and go to the medical provider to obtain the abortion. Um, uh, my colleague on the show um, characterized the district court's order as requiring the government to immediately facilitate the abortion. Um, obviously, I disagree with that characterization, as I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. But Judge Millett's position was rather straightforward. First, she viewed the due process clause as clearly applying to young women in Jane Doe's position, namely to undocumented individuals who are unlawfully present in the United States. I certainly agree with that position. And thus far in the case, the federal government um, has also at least not disagreed with that position. The only entity or judge who has uh, disagreed with that is the state of Texas in a recently filed amicus brief and Judge Henderson in the panel. The reason why most people agree with the proposition that undocumented persons possess Fifth Amendment rights is that the text of the Due Process Clause does not distinguish between citizens and non-citizens. Rather, it says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. In part for that reason, the Supreme Court has recognized that undocumented individuals who are unlawfully present possess constitutional rights. Uh, one case recognizing that is Plyler versus Doe. There are also numerous other cases recognizing that non-citizens who are unlawfully present in the United States or removable from the United States possess rights under the due process clause. And I'm happy to talk about those later on if they're of interest. The second point that Judge Millett raised that I also agree with is that the conduct of the government was interfering with Ms. Doe's rights under the Due Process Clause, namely that what the government was doing was imposing an undue burden on her ability to obtain an abortion that she was constitutionally entitled to. It's important here to recognize that under state law, this young woman was entitled to an abortion. She obtained the necessary judicial bypass that allowed her to decide whether she could obtain an abortion. She 
decided she wanted to obtain an abortion. She obtained the necessary counseling. After the counseling, she still wanted to obtain an abortion. And then at that point, the question was, well, can she actually get to the clinic to get that abortion? And what was impeding her ability to get to the clinic is that ORR refused to allow refused to consent to the shelter releasing the young woman from its custody. Physically holding someone, physically restraining someone so that they're not actually able to get to a doctor is, I think, a pretty straightforward example of an undue burden. And therefore, the question is whether the benefits of what the government was doing outweigh the burdens on the young woman. It's difficult really to quantify the benefits to the government because the only benefits that the government really proffered is that it didn't want to be put in a position to affirmatively facilitate and thus be complicit in the abortion, but the government wasn't really having to facilitate anything. Um, the young woman was going to be released into the custody of her court-appointed guardian. The government wasn't going to have to pay for the abortion. And the only reason why the government had to even give consent to releasing the young woman from its custody is because ORR had imposed that as a policy on its own. So there aren't really a ton of benefits to what the government was doing. And instead, there were just a ton of burdens, namely prolonging the pregnancy and increasing the risk to the young woman, not only her health, but also um, uh, her mental mindset and emotional well-being as she had to persist in an unwanted pregnancy, wondering whether she was going to be able to obtain the abortion that she was entitled to. Thank you very much for that. Catherine, your uh, response to Judge Millett's uh, claim both that uh, the young woman was constitutionally entitled to an abortion and that the government's position uh, imposed an undue burden on it. And, uh, you know, in the course of answering, uh, do you agree or disagree with Judge uh, Henderson's position that because uh, the young woman was not a U.S. citizen and not a permanent resident and had no substantial connections to the United States, she was not entitled to constitutional rights under the Due Process Clause? Certainly. Uh, in, in dissent, Judge Henderson, oh, first of all, as you as you mentioned, I, I do not agree with Judge Millett. Uh, I, I do believe that, that Judge Henderson's dissent is, uh, is instructive. Judge Henderson uh, wrote that um, that she believes that the government wrongfully failed to take a position as to JD's uh, Jane Doe's constitutional rights as an undocumented individual, and that um, an alien minor who attempts to enter the United States does not uh, automatically have a right to an elective abortion, and goes on to say to conclude otherwise rewards lawlessness and erases the fundamental difference between citizenship and illegal presence in our country, and that. Jane Doe is not entitled to the due process protections of the Fifth Amendment, um, that even if, uh, even if Jane Doe does enjoy some of the protections of the due process clause, due process is not an all-or-nothing entitlement. And we see that in that the Supreme Court has rejected constitutional claims to freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom to keep and bear arms, and other rights in that context. Really, until now, 
no court had ever declared that the Constitution gives undocumented immigrants with virtually no ties to the country the full scope of the affirmative liberty rights that are accorded to citizens. And in this case, we have um, an undocumented immigrant, a teenage girl, without connections to the U.S., apprehended while attempting to cross the border, who had second thoughts and wanted to go home at one point. And we have seen, based on long-settled doctrine, that the constitutional rights that an undocumented immigrant may invoke depend on the scope, uh, depend in part on the scope of that person's ties to this country. Everyone uh, within the country, of course, has some baseline rights. These include baseline procedural protections, the right to be free from gross physical abuse, but not necessarily the full scope of affirmative liberty rights. And this is something that uh, that we have uh, have not heard from the Supreme Court. We we would like for them to weigh in on. Um, of course, the initial inquiry when we're assessing any due process claim is whether the Constitution protects the right that the plaintiff is asserting. And only once that has been confirmed should a court move on to whether the government has violated that right. Um, and and in this case, it is by no means clear that um, that this is uh, a protected right, even though the Constitution does uh, confer basic protection against gross physical abuse. But um, but full Fourth Amendment rights, according to citizens, do not apply to the un, undocumented immigrants with only minimally uh, minimal connections to this country. Um, the same with First Amendment and other constitutional rights. And in this case, the affirmative substantive due process right um, recognized by the court to seek the medical procedure of an elective abortion is much more analogous to the affirmative liberty rights courts have repeatedly held are not accorded to undocumented immigrants who lack substantial connections to the country. Um, we see that um, that this is not universal. In fact, in, in oral argument, um, Judge Kavanaugh uh, asked, uh, pointed out that women in federal prison have a right to obtain an abortion, and the government does facilitate that right. And the government's response was that imprisoned women have no other avenue of getting an abortion, whereas Jane Doe and women similarly situated do have other options. Similarly, uh, pregnant detained adult women, uh, other undocumented uh, immigrants who are adults, again, um, they have, um, they're much more restricted. Uh, there is a policy that allows detained adult women to get an abortion. And the difference is that not all detained adult women have the option of voluntary departure, releasing them from government hands. Whereas Jane Doe, an unaccompanied minor and other similarly situated undocumented minors do have the option of a voluntary departure, whether to, uh, her home country or by finding a sponsor. And both of those avenues uh, were open to her and were, in fact, actively pursued. Thanks very much for that. So, uh, Leah, uh, lots to respond to, but this, uh, uh, Catherine has endorsed Judge Henderson's claim that undocumented aliens do not have full constitutional rights. Judge Henderson cited a series of cases in which the court has held that rights from freedom of expression and association to the freedom to keep and bear arms and the freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures have to yield to Congress's authority over immigration. And Judge Henderson also cited the Mandel case where the Supreme Court recently approved the executive's denial of entry to an Afghan man whose U.S. citizen was waiting for him in this country on those grounds. 
What, what's your evaluation of, of that position, and, and how do you think that this Supreme Court might rule on that question of whether aliens have the constitutional rights that citizens have in this context? So I don't think that the denial of entry cases are that applicable. No one is arguing that Jane Doe or any of these young women have a constitutional right to admission or entry into the United States. The question is, once they are in the United States and once they are in the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, do they possess rights under the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause? Uh, my colleague suggested that there are some rights that individuals who are undocumented and unlawfully present possess under the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, but I'm not sure what basis you could say that persons possess some of the rights under the Fifth Amendment, but not others. The Fifth Amendment's protections under the due process clause apply to one single group, persons. That one group possesses all of the rights under the Fifth Amendment. One of those rights is to be free of undue burdens on the ability to obtain an abortion. I think it is incorrect to characterize what Jane Doe is seeking here as an affirmative liberty right. She is not seeking to have the employees of the federal government perform the abortion. She is not seeking to have the federal government pay for her abortion. She is instead asking to be physically released from the federal government's custody so that she can travel to a doctor. That is a freedom from restraint. Some of the rights that my colleague conceded that undocumented persons without substantial connections to the United States would undoubtedly possess are rights, say, for, for physical well-being. The federal government couldn't torture or perform medical experiments on persons who attempt to unlawfully enter the United States and are apprehended. But those constraints, those rights, have their home in the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, and specifically the substantive guarantees of the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. So if we don't think that the federal government can torture or forcibly perform abortions on or conduct medical experiments on undocumented individuals who are unlawfully apprehended or after they attempt to enter the United States, then certainly these young women also possess the same kind of freedoms from unlawful restraints on their constitutionally protected liberty right to have an abortion. Some of the other cases that um, uh, my colleague was referencing, such as Verdugo or Cudes, you know, that is a Fourth Amendment case that said the warrant requirement doesn't apply to the search of a foreign national abroad. I do not think it follows from that case or others that individuals who are unlawfully present in the United States and in the physical custody of the federal government can be restrained from having an abortion. My colleague also suggested that this would somehow reward lawlessness or unlawful presence. But of course, the Supreme Court rejected that argument in Plyler versus Doe when it held that states couldn't refuse access to public education for undocumented children. There, the state of Texas had similarly argued that 
requiring it to give public education would reward lawlessness, but the reality is the due process clause does not distinguish between individuals who are lawfully or unlawfully present and extends its protections to all persons. Um, and I think that that fundamental right is implicated here. I'm not exactly sure what the other options for women in Jane Doe's position are to obtain an abortion. If the shelter won't release her to obtain an abortion, she can't very well perform it on herself. The federal government says she has the option of voluntarily departing. However, in Jane Doe's case, the country that she was fleeing prohibits abortion. On top of that, she also fled the country because she said she was at risk of persecution and violence. Moreover, the time it would take to process her voluntarily departure could also prolong her pregnancy to a point where an abortion would no longer be safe or and she would be unwilling to have it. So for those reasons, I think that women, minor women who are in ORR's custody, have constitutional rights under the Due Process Clause, and that includes the right to be free from the restraints of the government who is attempting to prevent them to get to the doctor who will perform a medical procedure on them. Thanks so much for that. So, Catherine, uh, Leah just made two arguments. First, she said that even though some rights, like the Fourth Amendment, might apply to uh, citizens but not to aliens abroad, that was the Vertugo or Quidez case where Chief Justice Rehnquist held that uh, we the people refers to citizens and when the Fourth Amendment referred to the right of the people, it was talking about citizens. By contrast, uh, Leah said the due process clause refers to persons, not citizens, and therefore should apply fully in this case. What, since that's an important point, what's your response to that? Well, first of all, relating to the nature of this right, I think we, uh, we being on, on opposite sides of the issue, one might characterize we have a fundamental disagreement on the the nature of abortion and its relation to um, uh, to the Fifth Amendment and whether this is an affirmative liberty right, which courts have repeatedly held are not accorded to undocumented immigrants who lack substantial connections to the country. Um, and and I would maintain that that this is not there. There are numerous cases again that have specifically held that. Um, that while initial lawful entry affords safe conduct and does confer certain rights, which become more extensive and secure when when the um, when the entrant makes preliminary declaration of intent uh, of intention to become a citizen, and then they expand to those of full citizenship upon naturalization, and um, and so we know that there are there are basic protections. Uh, these include protections against gross physical abuse, as we discussed, but. Um, but courts have routine, routinely held that unlawfully present uh, undocumented immigrants with minimal connections to the country lack affirmative liberty rights. And here we're talking about uh, not simply uh, release. Uh, there are procedures that HHS ORR has developed for situations um, where uh, undocumented immigrant minors unaccompanied are apprehended over the border. And and so really, it's a mischaracterization of the nature of HHS-ORR custody. Um, we're not asking 
just for freedom here because there are procedures. HHS ORR and the facility, the, the private facility where she is um, being housed and cared for, would willingly release her to a sponsor, has been working to that effect, and has uh, initially, again, there were two uh, two potential sponsors who were identified who declined to apply to sponsor Jane Doe. Um, the, the facility and HHS ORR have been trying uh, since then or had been trying to um, to find another sponsor who would be willing to uh, to provide and uh, and facilitate the abortion that that Jane Doe was seeking. but uh, but in this case, um, what what she was requesting, since she was not able to find a sponsor and declined to formally apply to be returned to her home country, which she had uh, considered at one point, um, it would require that the facility and federal taxpayer dollars be used and expended to facilitate an abortion. We're talking about things like staff hours and cost for transportation to a facility that would perform a second trimester later term abortion. And that's that's not every every facility. Uh, we're talking about follow-up medical monitoring and care and uh, and other associated costs. And that does require um, care and, and expenditure of, expen- of, of federal taxpayer dollars by HHS ORR, by this facility where she's being housed and cared for. And that could have been avoided had she been uh, released to a sponsor, had a suitable sponsor been found. But uh, in the place of that, uh, what she was asking and her uh, her guardian ad litem and attorney ad litem were asking for was that the federal government spend taxpayer dollars to facilitate that. And that's a very different matter. It's not simply a matter of releasing her and allowing her to do as she will and then she can, she can return. It would have required uh, transportation and concrete costs. Many thanks for that. Uh, so, uh, Leah, Catherine says that even assuming uh, Roe v. Wade uh, applies, um, it wasn't an undue burden for the U.S. government to transfer an unlawful immigrant minor to an immigration sponsor in this case, as long as the transfer was expeditious. And in that sense, her argument uh, echoes that of Judge Kavanaugh in the D.C. Circuit case, who said an, uh, the transfer has to be expeditious, but it doesn't have to be immediate. What's your evaluation of that on constitutional grounds? Uh, Yeah, so a few things on that argument. First, I think it's um, just not true that transferring to a sponsor would have had to be expeditious. Because of ORR's refusal to release this young woman into the custody of a court-appointed guardian instead of um, a sponsor, which they hadn't yet found, they delayed this young woman's abortion by almost seven weeks. They pushed her from a first trimester abortion that she could have obtained a medication abortion to a second trimester abortion because of the length of time they had already taken attempting to find her a sponsor. Second, the reason why they are claiming they want to find her a sponsor is because of the argument that my colleague is alluding to, namely that they do not want to have to affirmatively facilitate the abortion. But releasing this young woman into the custody of a sponsor would also involve taxpayer dollars and affirmative facilitation, in fact, arguably more so than if they had just released her from the custody temporarily of the private contracting shelter. In order to find her a sponsor, the government has to undergo extensive background checks, 
do more forms that will also require staff hours and costs as they continue to monitor her health and well-being. So finding a sponsor and releasing her into the custody of a sponsor would also require time, energy, and money on the part of the government, at least as if not more than the amount of time, energy, and costs that would be required just to temporarily release her into the custody of her court-appointed guardian. So I don't think that the government's argument that um, it was seeking to release her into the temporary into the custody of a sponsor really provides a ground to say that what the government was doing doesn't constitute an undue burden because in that search it delayed the one young woman's abortion by several weeks that has a considerable cost not only to the risks of her health but also her well-being and it's not clear what if any benefit there is from doing so because the amount of facilitation and costs that would be imposed on the government for doing so are comparable in either circumstance. So the procedures that Health and Human Services and ORR had developed those procedures that the government now says, well, that is what is constituting facilitation, the government doesn't have to have those procedures. That is, it doesn't have to require the private contractors that are housing these young women to seek its consent and approval before allowing the young woman in the private contractor's custody to obtain abortion. So this is a burden and facilitation of the government's own making, and it's not even more facilitation than would be required if the government attempted to find and actually did find a sponsor into whose custody the young woman could be released. Thanks so much for that. So Catherine, like uh, Judge Kavanaugh, Le- Leah is uh, saying that all parties recognize that Roe and Planned Parenthood are precedents we, precedents we must follow. That's what Judge Kavanaugh uh, said in his uh, separate statement. But it, you're both disagreeing about how to apply the undue burden standard. How do you understand the undue burden standard from the Planned Parenthood and Casey case? And what's your response to Leah's claim that uh, an expeditious rather than an immediate uh, transfer is indeed an undue burden? Certainly. As Judge Kavanaugh explained in dissent, uh, what the majority did here was give a new right for unlawful immigrant minors in U.S. government detention to obtain immediate abortion on demand, thereby barring any government efforts to expeditiously transfer the minors to their immigrant sponsors before they make that momentous life decision. And he does not believe that Jane Doe should be allowed abortion on demand, but that, in fact, Um, The majority approach there was radically inconsistent with Supreme Court precedent because the Supreme Court has routinely upheld a wide variety of abortion regulations that do entail some delay in the abortion, but nonetheless serve permissible government purposes. Now here, HHS ORR has, uh, again, three potential outcomes for an undocumented immigrant minor in their custody. First, we have to remember that in this case, everyone was working together to locate a suitable sponsor, and we're including Jane Doe, HHSORR, the the facility in question, and two potential sponsors were located but declined to pursue sponsorship. Of course, finding a sponsor does entail staff hours and costs, but it is one of the three standard outcomes for the undocumented immigrant teen in HHSORR care. And so 
This is time, energy, cost that is expended regardless of a teen's pregnancy. It is something that is simply standard. One, uh, consider a return to, uh, to the teen's home country and the teen is able to put in, uh, the undocumented immigrant minor is able to put in a formal request for return to the country of origin, and that did not happen in this case. It was considered initially she apparently wanted to and then did not formally apply. Then step two is locate an, a, a potential sponsor here in the United States, and everyone was working towards that. Um, the third option would be remaining in HHS ORR care, through age 18. And so while there was, in effect, some delay here, it was following standard immigration HHS ORR procedures, and it did not present an undue burden because um, because there are, again, an, a wide variety of abortion regulations that do entail some kind of a delay and have been upheld. And, um, and this is simply, um, simply one of the... Um, one of the, the procedures that HHS ORR regularly follows was attempting to find a suitable sponsor who would uh, facilitate that abortion for her and not require um, federal taxpayer funding to be expended on an abortion. Um, but it would not have entailed some kind of additional time or energy or cost over and above uh, the general sponsorship process. And so that was not time or energy or cost that was directly going towards facilitating the abortion, unlike, for example, um, uh, driving, finding the, the abortion facility, transporting Jane Doe there, and the medical follow-up that would have been entailed and, uh, and in effect, was eventually um, uh, brought into, into effect by the way that, um, that the abortion did in the end take place. Thanks so much. Well, there's time for one more question in this fascinating debate, and then we'll have closing arguments. Leah, there's a cert petition pending to the U.S. Supreme Court. If the court agrees to take this case, Hargan versus Garza, um, how do you imagine that the justices might rule and what might their reasoning be? So the cert petition in Hargan versus Garza isn't actually asking the Supreme Court to decide the merits of whether women who are similarly situated to Jane Doe can obtain abortion while formally in the custody of HHS. The cert petition that the Solicitor General filed is instead asking for the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit's opinion to be vacated because the case became moot once Jane Doe obtained her abortion before the Supreme Court had the opportunity to weigh in. On top of that, the Solicitor General has also asked for the lawyers who are representing the young woman and her guardian to potentially be referred for disciplinary or ethical sanctions in the relevant bars. So that's the potential action that the Supreme Court might take. I expect that the Solicitor General's petition will be denied. The Solicitor General, I do not think, identifies any straightforward or reasonable grounds on which the attorneys committed unethical 
conduct or conduct on becoming of a member of the bar. I also do not think that the Solicitor General identified a reasonable grounds to vacate the underlying decision because the underlying decision was just regarding a stay of the district court order and wasn't a full-blown decision on the merits. And on top of that, the Solicitor General doesn't identify any questions that are raised in the petition that are potentially relevant for certiorari, which is typically a required ground before the Supreme Court vacates an underlying decision. In the event that the case eventually makes its way to the Supreme Court on the merits, I expect that the court, as currently constituted, would say that what the government did here constitutes an undue burden for women like Jane Doe who have Fifth Amendment protections under the Due Process Clause as persons. The one thing I wanted to clarify a little, uh, based on what my colleague said, is she characterized all of the parties in this case as working together in order to find a sponsor. I'm not sure that that is, in fact, an accurate characterization of what was going on. The government is insisting that it has the right to inform potential sponsors for Jane Doe that she obtained an abortion. One of the potential sponsors that it wants to inform that Jane Doe obtained an abortion is Jane Doe's uncle, who threatened to beat her if she obtained an abortion. I do not think that that is reasonably working to obtain a sponsor. And also, Jane Doe was not asking for the government to drive or transport her to and from the clinic. Thanks for that, uh, Catherine. Responses on that factual point. And then, if the Supreme Court were to take the case, and if the court were to decide the case on the merits, how do you think that this court would decide it? Uh, well, first of all, in terms of um, of transportation, that that may be a, a point of fact that um, the that she may have obtained alternative transportation. Nonetheless, even facilitating alternative transportation would entail um, staff time, energy, resources, and of course the follow-on medical care. So there there's no way around absent complete release, some level of involvement and expenditure of federal taxpayer dollars in some way uh, towards facilitating the abortion. Um, in terms of, of the case going to the Supreme Court um, and, and how that would come out, um, I think that, um, that it's an open question. But, um, but as Petitioner wrote, this is a classic case of a decision that was that was really mooted by respondents' conduct on the way to the Supreme Court and clearing the path for further relitigation, um, because uh, because the 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 losing party was stopped from opposing um, on direct review. And when an appeal becomes moot on its way to the Supreme Court, the established practice of the court is to vacate the judgment below and remand with a motion to dismiss, at least when the appeal otherwise would have warranted further review. And the en banc panel, uh, by adopting Judge Millett's statement, um, the en banc majority took a position on the merits. And that's how the dissenters understood it. Um, for example, when you look at, at Judge Kavanaugh in dissent saying today's majority decision is ultimately based on a constitutional principle as novel as it is uh, as it is wrong. And so um, the decision that was issued by the divided en banc court on a very important question of constitutional law, it plainly would have warranted Supreme Court review, um, but for the actions of um, of Jane Doe's representatives. And so um, and so the the mootness was due to 
um, was due to that conduct and the potential legal consequences to the government of leaving in place the Court of Appeals' erroneous decision do justify Supreme Court intervention. There are um, there are potentially very severe consequences, and so that decision needs and merits Supreme Court review. Many thanks for that. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this very illuminating discussion. Uh, we, the people listeners, you know that we're now clipping our closing arguments as podcast shorts, one or two minute summaries of the leading constitutional arguments on both sides and hope you're finding that helpful. Uh, Leah, the first closing argument is to you uh, as concisely as possible. Why do you believe that the Constitution prohibits the government from delaying an abortion for the undocumented teens in this case unless they return to their home countries or seek a sponsor? Yes, the Fifth Amendment's text is clear. Its protections extend to persons. Undocumented young women who are in the United States are persons. They therefore have the protections of the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. That includes the freedom from undue burdens on their ability to obtain an abortion, the government's refusal to release a young woman from its custody, or its choice to delay her release from custody until she can find a potential sponsor, which may not occur for several weeks and may not occur until the point at which she is no longer entitled under state law to an abortion, that constitutes an undue burden, if anything does. Therefore, these young women are entitled to be released from HHS custody while they remain in HHS custody so that they can see a doctor. Thank you so much for that. Catherine, last word to you. Why do you believe that the Constitution does not forbid the government from delaying an abortion to the undocumented teens in this case unless they return to their home countries or seek a sponsor? No court has ever declared that the Constitution gives an undocumented immigrant with virtually no ties to the country the full scope of affirmative liberty rights that are accorded to citizens. Under long-settled doctrine, the, constitu the constitutional rights that an alien may invoke depend on the scope of ties to this country. And we, uh, we've discussed that all persons have certain constitutional rights, baseline rights, procedural protections, and the right to be free from gross physical abuse. But we do not know, the Supreme Court has not ruled that, uh, that unlawfully present undocumented immigrants are accorded the, the full scope of affirmative liberty rights that citizens and lawfully present aliens possess. And so we first have to ask, does an undocumented immigrant have a constitutional right to an abortion? And that is by no means clear. Then we have to ask, can an undocumented immigrant child compel the U.S. to spend taxpayer dollars to facilitate an abortion uh, in violation of the Hyde Amendment? And when there are alternative means of obtaining that abortion, namely either return to the home country or finding a suitable sponsor, and that procedure, uh, a, a sponsor was um, was sought. And then, in this case, in terms of the Supreme Court cert petition, has the case been mooted by Jane Doe's abortion? And, um, and, and we would say that, that the Supreme Court does need to hear this case, that this does need to be um, heard, that the merits need to be reached. Um, uh, at some point. And, um, and so, uh, and so that lower court decision must be vacated. And then the, the final real piece to this puzzle, as has been amply briefed before the Supreme Court in this matter, did respondents counsel engage in conduct that would be unbecoming a member of the Supreme Court bar? The court is its own judge of that. And, and I, I believe will determine that on its own. But when it comes to the merits, 
should um, should an undocumented immigrant teen um, minor have uh, a a constitutional right to an abortion, uh, I would answer no. And furthermore, that um, that the U.S. government and uh, and its assigns should not be um, ordered to spend federal taxpayer dollars to facilitate such an abortion. Thank you so much, Leah Littman and Catherine Glenn Foster, for an illuminating, substantive, and very interesting discussion of this important uh, constitutional case. Leah, Catherine, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ogana Etze. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's Town Hall programs. What an entertaining and educational way to achieve your rigorous CLE credits if you're a lawyer. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Please be sure to rate our podcast on iTunes and other platforms. We also would like to hear from you on how we're doing. Please visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash survey and tell us. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit government support and rely on the generosity, passion, engagement, and love for lifelong learning and love of the U.S. Constitution of people like you and listeners across America and indeed around the world. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.